If you don't know, you're about to know right now. You're about to learn. Education. I'm Quindell Evans. Bluepoetry.com I like to read every day. You know, just for a few minutes, you know, just read a chapter, some a day. Stimulate the mind, exercise the mind. So, think and grow rich. I'm still reading this. I'm going to read chapter 6 called Imagination. So, I'm giving you the opportunity to read with me, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. Chapter 6 is Imagination, the Workshop of the Mind, the Fifth Step to Riches. You feel me? Yes, education. So let's go. The imagination is literally the workshop wherein are fashioned all plans created by people. The impulse, the desire is given shape, form, and action through the aid of the imaginative faculty of the mind. It has been said that we can create anything we can imagine. Of all the ages of civilization, this is the most favorable for the development of the imagination because it is an age of rapid change. Everywhere we come into contact with stimuli that develop the imagination. Through the aid of the imaginative faculty, humankind has discovered and harnessed more of nature's forces during the past 50 years than during the entire history of the human race previous to that time. We have conquered the air so completely that the birds are a poor match for us in flying. We have harnessed the ether and made it serve as a means of instantaneous communication with any part of the world. We have analyzed and weighed the sun at a distance of millions of miles and I have determined through the aid of imagination the elements of which it consists. We have discovered that our own brain is both a broadcasting and a receiving station for the vibration of thought and we are beginning now to learn how to make practical use of this discovery. We have increased the speed of locomotion until we may now travel at a speed of more than 600 miles an hour. Our only limitation within reason lies in the development and use of our imagination. We have not yet reached the apex of development in the use of our imaginative faculty. We have merely discovered that we have an imagination and have commenced to use it in a very elementary way. Two forms of imagination. The imaginative faculty functions in two forms. One is known as synthetic imagination and the other is creative imagination. Synthetic imagination through this faculty, one may arrange old concepts, ideas, or plans into new combinations. This faculty creates nothing. It merely works with the material of experience, education, and observation with which it is fed. It is the faculty used by, used most by the inventor with the exception of the genius who draws upon the creative imagination when they cannot solve a problem through synthetic imagination. Creative imagination. Through the, faculty, through the faculty of creative imagination, the infinite mind of humankind has direct communication with infinite intelligence. It is the faculty through which hunches and inspirations are received. It is by this faculty that all basic or new ideas are developed. It is through this faculty that through vibrations from the minds of others are received. And it is 
through this faculty that one individual may tune into or communicate with the subconscious minds of others. The creative imagination works automatically in the manner described in subsequent pages. This faculty functions only when the conscious mind is vibrating at an exceedingly rapid rate, as for example when the conscious mind is stimulated through the emotion of a strong desire. The creative faculty becomes more alert, more receptive to vibrations from the sources mentioned in proportion to its development through use. Indeed, both the synthetic and creative faculties of imagination become more alert with use, just as any muscle or organ of the body develops through use. The imaginative faculty may have become weak through inaction. It can be revived and made alert through use. This faculty does not die though it may become quiescent through the lack of use. This statement is significant. Ponder on it before continuing. Keep in mind as you follow these principles that the entire story of how one may convert desire into money cannot be told in one statement. The story will be complete only when one has mastered, assimilated, and begun to make use of all the principles. The great leaders of business, industry, and finance, and the great artists, musicians, poets, and writers became great because they developed the faculty of creative imagination. Desire is only a thought, an impulse. It is nebulous and ephemeral. It is abstract and of no value until it has been transformed into its physical counterpart. While the synthetic imagination is the one used most frequently in the process of transforming the impulse of desire into money, you must keep in mind that you may face circumstances which demand use of the creative imagination as well. Center your attention for the time being on the development of the synthetic imagination. Transformation of the intangible impulse of desire into the tangible reality of money calls for the use of a plan or plans. These plans must be formed with the aid of the imagination and mainly with the synthetic faculty. Read the entire book through, then come back to this chapter and begin at once to put your imagination to work on building a plan or plans for the transformation of, the, of your desire into money. Detailed instructions for building plans have been given in almost every chapter. Carry out the instructions best suited to your needs. Put your plan in writing. If you have not already done so, the moment you complete this, you will have the, you will have definitely given concrete form to intangible desire. Read the preceding sentence once more. The moment you complete this, you will have definitely given concrete form to the intangible desire. Read it aloud very slowly. As you do so, remember that the moment you put in writing this statement of your desire and the plan for its realization, you have actually taken the first of a series of steps that will enable you to convert the thought into its physical counterpart. The earth on which you live, you yourself and every other material thing are the result of evolutionary change through which microscopic bits of matter have been organized and arranged in an orderly fashion. Moreover, this statement is of stupendous importance. This earth, every one of the billions of individual cells of your body and every atom of matter begin as an intangible form of energy. Desire is a thought impulse. Thought impulses are forms of energy. 
When you begin with the thought impulse desire to accumulate money, you are drafting into your service the same stuff that nature used in creating this earth in every material form in the universe, including the body and brain in which the thought impulses function. As far as science has been able to determine, the entire universe consists of but two elements, matter and energy. Through the combination of energy and matter, has been create though through the combination of energy and matter has been created everything perceptible from the largest star that floats in the heavens down to and including humankind you are now engaged in the task of trying to profit by nature's method you are sincerely and earnestly we hope trying to adapt yourself to nature's laws by endeavoring to convert desire into its physical monetary equivalent you can do it it has been done before you can build a fortune through the aid of immutable laws, but first you must become familiar with these laws and learn to see them. Through repetition and by approaching a description of these principles from every conceivable angle, the author hopes to reveal to you the secret through which great fortunes have been accumulated. Strange and paradoxical as it may seem, the secret is not a secret. Nature herself advertises it on the earth on which we live, the stars, the planets suspended within our view, in the elements above and around us, in every blade of grass and every form of life within our vision. Nature advertises this secret in the terms of biology, in the conversion of a tiny cell, so small that it may be lost on the point of a pen into the human being now reading this line. The conversion of desire into its physical equivalent is certainly no more miraculous. Do not become discouraged if you do not fully comprehend all that has been stated. Unless you have long been a student of the mind, it is not to be expected that you will assimilate all that is in the chapter upon the first reading. But you will in time make good progress. The principles that follow will open the way for an understanding of imagination. Assimilate that which you understand as you read this philosophy for the first time. Then when you reread it and study it, you will discover that something has happened to clarify it and give you a broader understanding of the whole. Above all, do not stop nor hesitate in your study of these principles until you have read the book at least three times, for then you will not want to stop. How to make practical use of imagination. Ideas are the beginning points of all fortunes. Ideas are products of the imagination. Let us examine a few well-known ideas that have yielded huge fortunes with the hope that these illustrations will convey definite information concerning the method by which imagination may be used in accumulating riches. The Enchanted Kettle. Many years ago, an old country doctor drove to town, hitched his horse, quietly slipped into a drugstore by the back door and began dickering with the young drug clerk. His mission was destined to yield great wealth to many people. It was destined to bring to the South the most far-flung benefits since the Civil War. For more than an hour behind the prescription counter, the old doctor and the clerk talked in low tones. Then the doctor left. He went out to the buggy and brought back a large old-fashioned kettle and a big wooden paddle used for, the stirring, the con used for stirring the contents of the kettle and deposited them in the back of the store. The clerk inspected the kettle, reached into his inside pocket, 
took out a roll of bills and handed it over to the doctor. The roll contained exactly $500, the clerk's entire savings. The doctor handed over a small slip of paper on which was written a secret formula. The words on that small slip of paper were worth a king's ransom, but not to the doctor. Those magic words were needed to start the kettle boiling, but neither the doctor nor the young clerk knew what fabulous fortunes were destined to flow from that kettle. The old doctor was glad to sell the outfit for $500. The money would pay off his debts and give him freedom of mind. The clerk was taking a big chance by staking his entire life savings on a mere scrap of paper in an old kettle. He never dreamed his investment would start a kettle overflowing with gold that would surpass the miraculous performance of Aladdin's lamp. What the clerk really purchased was an idea. The old kettle in the wooden paddle and the secret message on the slip of paper were incidental. The strange performance of that kettle began to take place after the new owner mixed with the secret instructions and ingredient of which the doctor knew nothing. Read the story carefully and give your imagination a test. See if you can discover what it was that the young man added to the secret message which caused the kettle to overflow with gold. Remember, as you read, that this is not a story from Arabian Nights. Here you have a story of facts, stranger than fiction. Facts which begin in the form of an idea. Let us take a look at the vast fortunes of gold this idea has produced. It has paid and still paid huge fortunes to men and women all over the world who distribute the contents of the kettle to millions of people. The old kettle is now one of the world's largest consumers of sugar, thus providing jobs of a permanent nature to thousands of men and women engaged in growing sugarcane and in refining and marketing sugar. The old kettle consumes annually millions of glass bottles, providing jobs to huge numbers of glass workers. The old kettle gives employment to any to, to an arm, the old kettle gives an employment to an army of clerks, copywriters, and advertising experts throughout the nation. It has brought fame and fortune to scores of artists who have created magnificent pictures describing this product. The old kettle has converted a small southern city into business capital, into the business capital of the South, which now benefits directly or indirectly every business and practically every resident of the city. The influence of this idea now benefits every civilized country in the world, pouring out a continuous stream of gold to all who touch it. Gold from the kettle built and maintains one of the most prominent colleges of the South, where thousands of young people receive the training essential for success. The old kettle has done other marvelous things. All through the depression of the 1930s, when factories, banks, and businesses, houses, all through the depression of the 1930s, when factories, banks, and business houses were folding up and quitting by the thousands, the owner of this enchanted kettle went marching on, giving continuous employment to an army of men and women all over the world, and paying out extra portions of gold to those who long ago had faith in the idea. If the product of that old brass kettle could talk, it would tell thrilling tales of romance in every language, romance of love, romance of business, romances of professional men and women, who are daily stimulated by it. The author, is sure of, the author is sure of at least one such romance, for he was a part of it, and it all began not far from the very spot on which the drug clerk purchased the old kettle. It was here that the author met his wife, and it was she who first told him of the enchanted kettle. It was the product of that kettle they were drinking when, it was the product of that kettle they were drinking when he asked her to accept him for better or for worse. 
Now that you know the content of the Enchanted Kettle is a world famous drink, it is fitting that the author confessed that the home city of the drink supplied him with the wife. Also, that the drink itself provides him with stimulation of thought without intoxication and thereby serves to give the refreshment of mind and Arthur must have to do his best work. Whoever you are, wherever you may live, whatever occupation you may be engaged in, just remember in the future, every time you see the words Coca-Cola, that its vast empire of wealth and influence grew out of a single idea and that the mysterious ingredient the drug clerk, Asa Kandler, mixed with the secret formula was imagination. Stop and think about that for a moment. Remember also that the 13 steps to riches described in this book were the, were the media through which the influence of Coca-Cola has been extended to every city, town, village, and crossroads of the world. An idea you may create as sound and meritorious as Coca-Cola has the possibility of duplicating the stupendous record of this worldwide thirst killer. Truly, Thoughts are things, and their scope of operation is the world itself. What I would do if I had a million dollars. This story proves the truth of that old saying, where there's a will, there's a way. It was told to me by the beloved educating clergyman, Frank W. Gunsellis, who began his preaching career in the stockyards region of South Chicago. While Dr. Gunsellis was going through college, he observed many defects in our educational system, defects which he believed he could correct if he were the head of a college. His deepest desire was to become the directing head of an educational institution in which young men and women would be taught to learn by doing. He made up his mind to organize a new college in which he could carry out his ideas without being handicapped by the orthodox methods of education. He needed a million dollars to put the project across. Where was he to lay his hands on so large a sum of money? That was the question that absorbed most of this ambitious young preacher's thought. But he couldn't seem to make any progress. Every night he took that thought to bed with him. He got up with it in the morning. He took it with him everywhere he went. He turned it over and over in his mind until it became a consuming obsession with him. A million dollars is a lot of money. He recognized that fact. But he also recognized the truth that only the limitation is that which one sets up in one's own mind. Being a philosopher as well as a preacher, Dr. Gunsellis recognized, as do all who succeed in life, that definiteness of purpose is the point from which one must begin. He recognized too that definiteness of purpose takes on animation, life, and power when backed by a burning desire to translate that purpose into its material equivalent. He knew all these great truths yeah, he did not know where or how to lay his hands on one million dollars. The natural procedure would have been to give up and quit saying, ah, well, my idea is a good one, but I cannot do anything with it because I never can produce the necessary million dollars. That is exactly what the majority of people would have said. But it is not what Dr. Gunsellis said. What he said and what he did are so important that I now introduce him and let him speak for himself. One Saturday afternoon, I sat in my room thinking of ways and means of raising the money to carry out my plans. For nearly two years, I had been thinking, but I had done nothing but think. The time had come for action. I made up my mind, then and there, that I would get the necessary million dollars within a week. How? 
I was not concerned about that. The main thing of importance was the decision to get the money within a specific, a specified time. The moment I reached that decision, a strange feeling of assurance came over me, such as I had never before experienced. Something inside me seemed to say, why didn't you reach that decision a long time ago? The money was waiting for you all the time. Things began to happen in a hurry. I called the newspapers and announced I would preach a sermon the following morning entitled, What I Would Do If I Had a Million Dollars. I went to work on the sermon immediately. I must tell you, frankly, the task was not difficult because I had been preparing that sermon for almost two years. The spirit of it was part of me. Long before midnight, I had finished writing a sermon. I went to bed and slept with a feeling of confidence for I could see myself already in possession of the million dollars. Next morning, I rose early, went into the bathroom and read the sermon, then knelt and prayed that my sermon might come to, my, to the attention of someone who would supply the needed money. While I was praying, I again had that feeling of assurance that the money would be forthcoming. In my excitement, I walked out with, without my sermon and did not discover the oversight until I was in my pulpit about ready to begin delivering. It was too late to go back for my notes and what a blessing that was. Instead, my own subconscious mind yielded the material I needed. When I arose to begin my sermon, I closed my eyes and spoke with all my heart and soul of my dreams. I not only talked to the audience, but I fancy, but, but I fancy I talked also to God. I told what I would do with the million dollars if that amount were placed in my hands. I described the plan I had in mind for organizing a great educational institution where young people would learn to do practical things and at the same time develop their minds. When I had finished and sat down, a man slowly arose from his seat. About three rows from the rear and made his way toward the pulpit. I wondered what he was going to do. He came into the pulpit, extended his hand and said, Reverend, I liked your sermon. I believe you can do everything you said you would if you had a million dollars. To prove that, I believe in you and your sermon. If you will come to my office tomorrow morning, I will give you the million dollars. My name is Philip D. Armour. Young Gunsellers went to Mr. Armour's office and the million dollars was presented to him. With the money, he founded the Armour Institute of Technology. That is more money than the majority of preachers ever see in an entire lifetime. Yet the thought impulse behind the money was created in the young preacher's mind in a fraction of a minute. The necessary million dollars came as a result of an idea. Behind the idea was the desire that young Gustavus had been nursing in his mind for almost 20 years. Observe this important fact. He got the money within 36 hours of reaching a definite decision in his own mind to get it and deciding upon a definite plan for getting it. There was nothing new or unique about young Gonzalez's vague thinking about a million dollars and weakly hoping for it. Others before him and many since his time have had similar thoughts, but there was something unique and different about the decision he reached on that memorable Saturday when he put bigness into the background and definitely said, I will get the money within a week. God seems to throw himself on the side of people who know exactly what they want if they are determined to get just that. Moreover, the principle through which Dr. Gunsellis got his million dollars is still alive. It is available to you. The universal law is as workable today as it was when a young preacher made use of it so successfully. 
This book describes step by step the 13 elements of this great law and suggests how they may be put to use. Observe that Asa Candler and Dr. Frank Gunsworth have one characteristic in common. Both knew the astounding truth that ideas can be transmuted into cash through the power of definite purpose plus definite plans. If you are one of those who believe that hard work and honesty alone will bring riches, perish the thought. It is not true. Riches, when they come in huge quantities, are never the result of hard work. Riches come, if they come at all, in response to definite demands based upon, based upon the application of definite principles and not by chance and luck. Generally speaking, an idea is an impulse, a thought that impels action by an appeal to the imagination. All master sales, all master sales reps know that ideas can be sold where merchandise cannot. Ordinary sales reps do not know this. That is why they are ordinary. A publisher of books made a discovery that should be worth much to publishers generally. He learned that many people buy titles and not contents of books. By merely changing the name of one book that was not moving, his sales on that book jumped upwards more than a million copies. The inside of the book was not changed in any way. He merely ripped off the cover bearing the title that did not sell and put on a new cover with a title that had box office value. That, as simple as it may seem, was an idea. It was an imagination. There's no standard price on ideas. Creators of ideas make their own price, and if they are smart, they get it. The moving picture industry created a whole flock of millionaires. Most of them were men who couldn't create ideas, but they had the imagination to recognize ideas when they saw them. Andrew Carnegie knew very little about making steel. I have Carnegie's own word for this, but he made practical use of two of these principles described in his book and made the steel business yield him a fortune. The story of practically every great fortune starts with the day when the creative ideas and the seller of ideas got together and worked in harmony. Carnegie surrounded himself with experts who could do all that he could not do. People who created ideas and men who put ideas into operation and made themselves and others fabulously rich. Millions of people go through life hoping for favorable breaks. Perhaps a favorable break can get one an opportunity, but the safest plan is not to depend upon luck. It was a favorable break that gave me the biggest opportunity of my life, but 25 years of determined effort had to be devoted to that opportunity before it became an asset. The break consisted of my good fortune in meeting and gaining the cooperation of Andrew Carnegie. On that occasion, Carnegie planted in my mind the idea of organizing the principles of achievement into a philosophy of success. Thousands of people have profited by the discoveries made in the 25 years of research and several fortunes have been accumulated through the application of this philosophy. The beginning was simple. It was an idea that anyone might have developed. The favorable break came through Carnegie, but what about the determination, definiteness of purpose, the desire to attain a goal in the persistent effort of 25 years? It was no ordinary desire that survived disappointment, discouragement, temporary defeat, criticism, and the constant accusation of waste of time. It was a burning desire and obsession. 
When Mr. Carnegie first planted the idea in my mind, it was coaxed, nursed, and enticed to remain alive. Gradually, the idea became a giant under its own power, and it coaxed, nursed, and drove me. Ideas are like that. First, you give life, action, and guidance to the ideas, and then they take on a power of their own and sweep aside all opposition. Like Andrew Carnegie, Herb Keller, one of the founders of Southwest Airlines, is a good example of a seller of ideas. He was a lawyer in San Antonio, Texas, when Roland King, the creator of an idea, asked for his help in founding a new airline. Roland King was an investment advisor. As a side business, he ran an unprofitable air charter service between small Texas cities. At that time, most Americans who traveled by air were business executives or wealthy pleasure seekers. King was frustrated when he wanted to fly from one city in Texas to another. He could never get a seat on the airlines that currently flew through these routes, and besides, prices were too high. He recognized the need to create an airline that would fly between the three biggest cities in the state. King knew his little airline wasn't up to the task, so he decided to start one. He put together a feasibility study and business plan. He raised $100,000 and then went to, the, to Herb Keller, his lawyer, to arrange for the necessary paperwork to create Air Southwest Co., later called Southwest Airlines Company. Although Keller was at first skeptical, he worked with King to gain additional capital and some political support. On February 20th, 1968, the Texas Aeronautics Commission approved Southwest's petition to fly between the three cities. However, on February 21st, competing airlines, Braniff, Trans-Texas, and Continental, blocked the approval with a temporary restraining order. Keller, his enthusiasm for the airline, ignited by the efforts to quash it, put his litigation skills to work. The competition argued that Texas didn't need a new carrier. It took a three and a half year legal battle, including three trips to three courts for Southwest to prove otherwise and gain the necessary permission to start operating. Although they made a good start, it wasn't enough. The company lost $3.7 million that year and the losses continued for another year and a half. Southwest was trying to keep costs down and attract customers without compromising its original goals. By this time, Keller had become so enthralled with the concept that he gave up his law practice to run Southwest. His aim was to make Southwest the airline of choice in the market it served. One of his innovations was peak and off-peak airline pricing. Another was the 10-minute turnaround. After landing each plane, after landing, each plane will pull into the gate, get checked by maintenance, unload passengers, reload, and leave the gate within 10 minutes instead of the 45 minutes other airlines took. The 10-minute turnaround allowed the three-plane airlines, the three-plane airline, to maintain a busy schedule and improve its on-time performance. Because of their very limited budget, they couldn't advertise in the usual media, so they chose to promote the airline by word of mouth. To do this, the company dedicated it to cultivate a sensational, off-the-wall image. Customer service became their top priority. Flight attendants were trained to give tender loving care to the passengers. The company's slogan was, now there's somebody else up there who loves you. In addition, Keller eliminated the annoying, time-consuming methods 
the major airlines used in issuing boarding passes by creating open seating on all flights. No seat reservations were needed and passengers were given numbered boarding cards which were issued and collected at the gate. With passenger satisfaction as their main objective, Keller and his team built up a loyal following and a reputation for passenger consideration. With passenger, yeah, Southwest began to climb its way up. By 1978, it was one of the country's most profitable airlines. In the early 2000s, when many airlines suffered major setbacks, some going, some going into bankruptcy and even out of business, Southwest not only survived, but led the industry in profitability. Herb Keller gives this advice to success-minded people. One, stick to your ideas. Despite the efforts of its giant competitors to keep Southwest from entering the business, a positive attitude kept them going during three years of court flights and no operating income. Two, think of what the customers want and then give it to them. Three, overcome obstacles put in your path by taking positive steps to break them down even while the battle is being fought. Find ways to get around them. Four, keep open to new opportunities and when they arise, take positive steps to meet them. Success requires no explanation. Failure permits no alibis. That was chapter six of Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, the landmark bestseller for entrepreneurs. Chapter six was called Imagination. Chapter seven is organized planning, the crystallization of desire into action, the sixth step to riches. I'm gonna save this video on my live so you guys can watch anytime you want, you know, and read with me, chapter six, you feel me? Much love to no bad. See you February 28th at Golo, get over all life obstacles, open mic. I appreciate you, big bro. I ain't see you in a minute. Glad everything is good with you. You know, I want to learn the secrets to wealth. So I'm taking on, you know, the challenge. I'm, I'm making it my duty to read books that inspire me to manage my money, to think more clearly, to manage myself and discipline myself, and also to hone my creativity, to not limit myself, you know? In this chapter specifically, it was a one story in this chapter that spoke about a guy who received a million dollars in a week. In one week without doing anything crazy. So you can go back and watch the video and learn the story about how he got his million dollars. Um, but sometimes we put limitations on our minds like, oh, I'll never get a million dollars, but, or I'll never be rich, or I'll never, I'll never be able to do A, B, and C, but we can do whatever we want. And all we have to do is imagine it and have the faith that we can. By the way, this is 852 hertz, which you're listening to if you hear it. 852 hertz. Um, but... 852 hertz is good for the brain, by the way. But anyways, so this is one of the books I'm reading right now. This is the book I'm reading right now. Um, maybe I'll read chapter seven with you on live next time. And, you know, much love. I appreciate y'all for tuning in.
whoever tuned in and hopefully you guys can you know hopefully you guys are reading too but with that being said met out through i love every one of you i love everybody out there and i wish the best for you i hope you all think and grow rich bluepoetry.com let's go Said it's mine. That money, power, respect is mine. That bitch you thought on your dick is mine. You thought that you was the shit, it's mine. All the time, I said it's mine. That money, power, respect is mine. That bitch you thought on your dick is mine. You thought that you was the shit, it's mine. All the time, I said it's mine. That money, power, respect is mine. That bitch you thought on your dick is mine. You thought that you was the shit is mine. All the time, I said we started from the bottom. Now we're here. I said it's mine, it's mine, it's my year. Now, bitch, don't try to kill my vibe. You traumatized cause your man ain't me. He just anti-fly. I swear to God, I swear to God, ain't nobody could fuck with me except your bitch. Basically, she's on my dungarees. You probably in denial, or maybe you. See, she wanna fuck with the dream team Young dudes that's get cream, it's mine That money, power, respect, is mine That bitch you thought on your dick, is mine You thought that you was the shit, is mine All the time It's mine That money, power, respect, is mine That bitch you thought on your dick, it's mine You thought that you was the shit, it's mine All the time I said it's mine, it's mine, not yours, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, not yours, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, not yours, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine, not yours, it's mine. Tell that hoe to bring a friend and that's where fun begins. I don't give a fuck, that's why I'm committing all these sins. Got that California balance, all we do is win. I'm smiling on you niggas, why you hating niggas just grin. Hold up, wait a minute. I'm sippin', trippin', pippin', niggas stackin', rackin', rhyme, trappin', bitch, niggas keep on knackin', nigga, you lieutenant, lieutenant. and your boy is captain, captain. flyer than the ladder. I'm ghost boy like Casper. Casper. If a nigga front, this send them shots right at ya. <laughs> and now we ain't talkin' football when the bullets rushin' right past ya. We bout to make a killin', this rappin' be religion, and God made a decision for your boy here to be the illest. Been a dope boy, man, so it's telling him to deal it And nothing was the same, and I ain't never been no lame And I ain't never playing no games, just crown me the king Nigga, first name is James, my James never been playing It's mine, that's why you thought you invented it It's mine, she let you swim up in it It's mine, no it's not rented It's mine, all the time, it's mine you must have thought it was yours, but you're not sure Cause every time you out of line, she callin' mine You be all up in stores and in the malls But she fine, shopping online, no standing online I blow her mind, cause she blowin' mine he Heavy migraine build up, I'm on the grind It's mine, it's a sign that she whine and cry When you want her mind, when she with me, we wine and dine You you did not drop the ball, you couldn't score I'ma shine, you had your time, the game is mine I saved it, my hard drive, push you aside The lane is mine, we get high from the way we ride No limits, the sky is mine 
That's why you thought you invented? It's mine. She let you swim up in it? It's mine. No, it's not rent it. It's mine. All the time, it's mine. It's mine. That money, power, respect, it's mine. That bitch you thought in your dick? It's mine. You thought that you was the shit? It's mine. All the time. I said it's mine. It's mine, not yours. It's mine. It's mine. That's why you thought you invented. It's mine. You thought that you was shit. It's mine. All the time. I said it's mine. It's mine. It's mine. It's mine.